I've written a New York Times bestselling book and built nine companies and traveled all over the world. And But it's not because, you know, I'm some amazing person, which obviously I'm I'm really not in so many ways. But it's that I just don't want my life to be defined by lies I tell myself. And this is something I say a lot. I don't want to live within my talents. I want to live beyond my dreams. But you can't do that if you don't go there. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now if I ask the question... What is the one big topic or theme or takeaway or, you know, let's face it, obsession of Inside Influence of this podcast as a whole? Then the answer would probably be this. Storytelling. Now, sometimes that feels that feels kind of light to say, you know, to tell a story. It almost makes you think of fairy tales of something that you would do in a not so serious aspect of your life. Yet, storytelling is pretty much the essence of our DNA. In fact, you know, some might say that stories live within our DNA. From the dawn of humanity to today and beyond, storytelling is who we are. It's how we connect. It's how we engage. It captures our attention and compels our actions more than any other one thing on the planet. So when you look at it in that context, it's anything but light. It drives movements, drives elections, drives our decisions, drives the quality of our lives going forwards. So that might explain, that just little soapbox moment, might explain why storytelling, that is telling our individual and collective stories to other people, has rightly had its fair share of airtime on this podcast. But one thing that I don't feel like we've spoken about often enough, and I feel like I've spoken about often enough and that I intend to rectify today, is the impact of the stories we tell ourselves. Now these stories are usually about ourselves and our abilities or lack of for the majority of us and our own internal stories and how these stories impact how we show up, whether we show up and our ability to stand our ground when the road gets really tough and as we all know we're in a period of time right now where that road feels pretty tough. You know the things that we tell ourselves about ourselves like I'm not a good leader I know in my gut that this needs to be said or done but I'm just I'm not the person to do it or the biggest one that I see is this one I'm too old introverted different small the same large fill in the blank who do I think that I am to stand out Who do I think that I am to make waves? Who do I think that I am to be seen? Now these stories, and as I said, they're usually about ourselves and our abilities. My guest today refers to as our second stories. Which, if you're anything like me, just makes you wonder, if this is my second story, how freaking bad must my first story have been? Which we will get into, including how to rewrite any story that's keeping you stuck. 
and create a third story, which is the one that will ultimately shape the person you want to become. In short, your third story cuts the BS and enables you to live the life you've always wanted to live. Sounds like a big call. But first, let me tell you about the man behind this way of thinking and today's guest. Flip Flippin is a New York Times bestselling author. He's a serial social entrepreneur. He's a philanthropist, respected speaker, thought leader, and perhaps most surprising and impressive of all, father to 20 children. Now, can we just, just sit and comprehend that for a second? Just trying to get the shoes on two children in the morning is challenging enough. My brain literally melts at the concept of 20. Flip started out working with kids who had become involved in gangs setting up a very successful non-profit organization before and after one fateful day, which we will talk about, going on to found numerous companies, including one of the largest educator training companies in North America. Last year, and what brought Flip to my attention, along with Dr. Chris White, he released the book, Your Third Story, Author the Life You Were Meant to Live, which, with my obsession with storytelling, I was very quick to go and hunt down. Which brings us back to today, talking about our first, second, and ultimately third story. I won't ruin it by going too deep into definitions right now, but in short, your first story is the one you were given, culturally, societally, from your family, your religion, your community. The second one is the one you tell yourself to justify the first story. And the third story, the third story is when you throw away the whole goddamn book, and this time write your own. Now, I loved this conversation. It's impacted me in untold ways since as a, as a leader, as a parent, just a human being in this world. And if you've ever had that sneaking feeling, that feeling that there are maybe other words that you want to say, other ways you want to show up or other challenges you would dare to attempt, if you could just step back from the script for a while, then this, I promise, is the episode for you. Today, we dive deep into how to write your third story, the prerequisites you need to consider and the questions you should be asking yourself. The drivers for change, be that either an emotionally compelling reason from within you, just that, just that quiet voice, that little nagging quiet voice, or an external force that just backs you into a corner. Enter stage left, COVID-19. How you can become mindful of the stories you program into your children. This is a huge one for me going forwards as a parent, just noticing how my stories play out on my kids and the stories that I want to become the internal voices of them going forwards. Forgiveness, the benefits to forgiveness and the impact it can have on everyone around you when you dare to take the leap and, you know, make no mistake about it. Forgiveness is one of the most daring acts of bravery we can possibly commit ourselves to. And finally, how to see off the story dragons, love this, story dragons, who want to eat your third story for breakfast. Now, speaking of dragons, uh, I had a few tech dragons attacking my microphone for this recording. Usually we would record in what's called split track. So I'm on one microphone on one track. The guest is on another. It makes it easy to edit. On this particular occasion, I do not know what happened, but both of those tracks merged I'm guessing possibly by me somehow pressing a button I shouldn't have done. So apologies for the lower quality sound than usual on my behalf. But luckily, Flip still sounds fantastic. So sit back, get settled, do whatever your partial lockdown world looks like right now. 
and prepare to look inward, guided by the story master himself, Flip Flippin. Welcome to the podcast, Flip Flippin. Thanks, Drew. It's great to be with you. It's lovely to have you. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick off with a new question that's capturing my my brain at the moment, which is, what's the most influential idea that you've heard recently? Well, that's a that's a great question. So uh, let me tell you one of the things we're most interested in right now is that you can actually grow part of your brain. Now I know that's a fascinating concept, but the reality is is that we're just now learning through fMRIs, functional magnetic resonance images that you can regrow the hippocampus when it's damaged due to trauma or stress. And that just fascinates the heck out of me. So I'm I'm just going to rearrange those words in my head. So basically when, when your brain gets damaged through, as you said, through trauma, you can literally, is it, is it a medical process to regrow? Is it a personal process? It's actually a personal process. And I mean, Julius is such a great time to talk about this too, because You know, if you talk about trauma-informed care or kids in poverty or people in high-stress situations, it actually shrinks the hippocampus, which is the short-term memory part of your mind, of your brain. And and we've just recently, in the last three years, discovered that that can be regrown. And, and, you know, I mean, we all go through periods of high-stress. And if you'll think back to a time like that, it could be a parent dying or economic stuff or, or job stress that can be very high at times. And, and your hippocampus actually shrinks because of the cortisol impact on that, which is your short-term memory. So you'll find yourself, as crazy as this sounds, you'll get up and go in a room to get something and you won't remember why you went in there. And you'll be sitting there saying, golly, I'm losing my mind. And, and the truth is, part of your brain is actually shrinking, and it's the hippocampus. But we found now that we can actually regrow that. And that, to me, is just a, it's a marvelous concept and process. And what I, what I love about asking this question, and I've only just started asking it, is, you know, the, when you... If you're looking for great ideas, if you're looking for ideas that are, that are gaining traction, you know, ask people who have ideas because they're the ones that are usually tuned in to the most interesting ideas out there. And so I can't let this one go just this second. It, how? Because there's, there's got to be there's a how in there somewhere, right? Well, yeah. Yeah, for sure there is. And it's not a medical process. It's a relationship process. Actually, actually, what happens is to lower the stress levels, what we found, and, and this is from some of the top neuroscientists in the country that we spend a lot of time with, but what we've actually found is that the deeper and more connected your relationships are, the healthier you are, the lower stress levels you have in relationships, the more it actually grows the hippocampus, it lowers your cortisol levels, and So if you just stop and think about, you know, your kids, for example, coming home from uh, difficult scenarios in school that may be going on for weeks or perhaps even months with a, it could be a difficult classmate or bullying or something. The easiest and best way to do that is to just love on them, hug them, hold them, um, listen to them, let them share what they're feeling and you just affirming that. 
the same is true, though, in business relationships. As teams face difficult situations, oftentimes uh, we're involved in a lot of mergers and acquisitions, and those can be very high-stress times. It's really important to get the teams together in smaller groups and be able to let them just process what's happening. It doesn't necessarily have to be a problem-solving event, but a processing event. And doing that in supportive environments uh, actually actually structurally changes the brain. And I know that's shocking to a lot of people, but that is actually the reality of it. And uh, Paul Zak and many others have done a lot of in-depth research on this. It's a beautiful concept. Are there any specific, I'm just going to go to specifics, are there any, just say you pull people into a room, are there any specific questions that trigger that process, if you were going to guide that room? Yeah, uh, one of the things that uh, we like to do is we always start meetings with good things. You know, I've historically, and especially in my companies, the ones that I've built, and uh, I was always focused on the agenda and tending to business and tending to that agenda. And, and several years ago, many years ago, I shifted that focus to where we start tending to the people before we tend to the agenda. And, and the easiest thing for me was to start meetings with good things. There was always something to celebrate. And so I would want us to start our meetings off in, in a positive and up mood I want us to start off kind of celebrating exciting things that are going on. And it could be personal or professional. You could have a birthday or your children accomplish something. I, we didn't care what it was, but it was to set the tone for the meeting around a positive thing. And then as we moved into the agenda, let's say that it was a high-stress uh, situation that we may be dealing with. Um, it could be any kind of uh, many different varieties. But as we approached that, it was not on one person to solve it. The team would rally around them and really say, hey, guys, let's just put our minds together. So we did it in a very supportive environment. You see a lot of environments where uh, people feel like they're being blamed for something or they're having to own a mistake, which we certainly – uh, believe you do. But in that ownership, we want it to be a shared ownership. It's like, how do we get in there and help you with that? How? What do you need from us? How can we support you in that situation? So it's those kinds of things that build that, that deep connectivity, build a really safe place to work through issues. It's a powerful process. Um, yep. All right. So that's the problem about asking this question first up. I can, I can <laughs> usually talk about the answer forever. So let's, let's just let's come back around. I want to talk to you today about a book that you have co-authored recently um, called Your Third Story. And it's a reoccurring theme on this podcast, the power of story. And how we usually talk about it is the power of story externally, from a branding point of view, from an impact point of view, from a niche micro-authority point of view, unless you own your story and use it to drive your messaging forwards, you get lost in the noise. But what we haven't talked about much, which is probably even more important, is the impact that story has internally on our mm -hmm. internal physiology, energy, and ability to go forward and make some waves. Talk to me about what you've learned about that. What is the, what is the impact of our internal stories? What's well, huge. I mean, that internal story defines everything that takes place on the outside. 
And it's fascinating to me that most people don't know how to write that internal story. They, they struggle with it. They might create a lot of different drafts and erasures and write-overs and that sort of thing. But the question is, is, is how do you intentionally write that internal story? And, and to get to that part, you've really got to go through a couple of earlier parts that lay the foundation for the part that I think allows you to really write a great story. And I'm in, and to your point, Julie, we're talking about for your, for your life, because it's out of that, that you'll create everything that takes place around you, or it'll just happen by accident. So can you give me just an example of what can happen if we don't? So, so what are our, let's start that. What are our stories? What do our stories sound like? That's a great point right there. So, so let me, let me back up and, and I'll give you that piece to start off. So, you know, if I said, Julie, tell me about where you come from, you know, your background, most people, they start out saying, well, you know, I was born here and I grew up here and I lived here and I played these sports and I was in these clubs and I did these things through school. And, and I, I would be listening to that and thinking, absolutely, you know, amazing with a lot of interest. But the fact is, you did not write that story. Ninety percent of that story was written by other people. You live that story. You're born into that story. But that's not your story. You didn't write it. It's certainly the early start of your life, but it is not the story you wrote. In the second story begins somewhere in early adolescence. And that's where we start telling ourselves things to make ourselves okay, like we are, doing what we're doing, being the way we are, etc. And in the tragedy to me, Julie, is that most people, they end up living that story the rest of their life, which to me is a small story. The, the real challenge in the second story is that it's filled with lies. It's filled with things that are not true. But we tell ourselves those things simply so that we'll be okay in our own mind. Does that make sense to you? It does. Can you give me an example? So I understand the oh, concept yeah. of the first story. <laughs> give me an example of the second story. Well, I, you know, I can tell you one that I personally experienced early on. I'll never forget there was a girl in middle school that I really did like, and I really did want to take her to the movies. And so I was, you know, all gung-ho about asking her. And, uh, but, of course, I didn't ask her. And, but why didn't I ask her? Well, I didn't ask her because I had a baseball game. And I was pitching, and therefore I couldn't ask her. But you know what the joke is, is that I didn't have a baseball game every night of my life. I was just afraid to ask her. And so I tell myself stories that make it okay for me to not ask her. You know, the same thing is about going out for different teams and things. You tell yourself a story. I, I see people do it all the time. And, you know, I didn't I didn't go out for student council or I didn't run for this office or I I didn't take this trip or I didn't try this opportunity. And well, why not? And we always have a story. We have a story for everything we do. We have a story. Why are we on this broadcast today? Why are you wearing the clothes? What kind of car do you drive? There's a story behind everything. The question is, is, is it true? Is it really an accurate story? And a large chunk of them in adolescence are not true. I, with with that point, I think that 
you know, you've got your second story, a large part of it isn't true, but, but often it's useful. I think that's what's going around in my head at the moment. Often those, those second stories that you tell yourself through your adolescent years, they might not be true, but they're useful. They get you from point A to point B. But then you, it almost feels like you hit this other stage where the stories that you told yourself before that were maybe useful stop being useful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the way you said that is, is really beautiful. Uh, it'll get you from A to B. The problem is I don't want to go to B. B is not where I'm going. I'm trying to go to Z, and I'm trying to actually go to exponential Z. And A to B, for sure, telling myself those stories will get me A to B. But I, but I have zero interest in going from A to B. And, I, and I'll give you a great example of this. When I was uh, here at A&M, Texas A&M University, and I was working on my doctorate in I gave a speech in Washington, and uh, there I met one of the foremost uh, systems theorists in the world, and and he invited me to probably one of the top three most prestigious universities in the world to finish my doctorate under him and do research with him, et cetera, et cetera. It was an amazing opportunity. It really was. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Did I go or did I not go? I'm guessing in the context of this conversation, you didn't go. Ah, why would you think that? I mean, surely I could have done it. I had a four point here. I mean, obviously I've been very successful. What in the world would make you think I did not go? Why would I not go? Oh, that's a good question. Why do we not go? Because we, we, we tell ourselves a story about how we may or may not be good enough, how we may or may not mess it up, that we shouldn't be there that somebody else deserves it more. <laughs> exactly. And so a few years after I'd finished my graduate work, I ran into a dear friend of mine and he said, so how was your time at such and such university? And I said, oh, you know, I, I interviewed and got accepted and all that, but I chose not to go. And here's why. And I had listed off three or four reasons and I'll never forget my friend standing across from me. I'm 27 years old. And he looked at me and he said, you're an idiot. You're an absolute idiot. And, and I was like, well, no, no, let me, let me explain to you. Because you see, I, I told myself the story, and it sounded good enough to me that I believed it. So I shared it with a few friends, and they agreed with it. So obviously it was, it was the truth, and it was obviously the right story, except for my friend who looked at me, and he said, Flip, that is so much bull. Why are you doing this? And for the first time, Julie, I really had to stop and look. Why did I tell myself the stories I told myself to keep me from going to that particular university? And, and that night in my journal, I wrote down, here are the things I told myself. And right next to it, I wrote down, here's the truth. The truth is, is that I would not done well in high school. The truth is I would not done well in my undergraduate program. The truth is... I had struggled to get into the university I was in. The truth is that when I got into it, I ended up being the top student in my group. I had a four-point average and was excelling. Why in the world would I go to one of the top universities in the world and be exposed as a fraud? Why would I do that? I'm not going to do that. But I'm not going to tell myself, well, you're not good enough, and Flip, you really think that you're just fooling people. You're not that smart. You're not that bright. You're not that capable. I'm not going to tell myself that. I'm going to tell myself a lie that makes me okay. And, and so I did. 
and I lived a smaller life in that one way than I could have lived. And how important, how important are those people? I'm just, I'm thinking about that. How important are the people in your world that hopefully you hold close, that those rare people that you can tell your story to and will call you on it as, as, <laughs> you know, as much as we hate hearing it? Yeah, yeah, those people are amazing. You know, I, I really think you become like the five people you spend the most time with. And, and I think three of those five need to really be able to get in your face. They need to do it because they love you, but they need to be able to get in your face and say, that's just dumb. What the heck are you doing? I mean, why are you doing this? And so I think about, you know, I mean, you know, I've written a New York Times bestselling book and built nine companies and traveled all over the world and done all kinds of things. And but it it's not it's not because, you know, I'm some amazing person, which obviously I'm I'm really not in so many ways. But it's that I just don't want my life to be defined by lies I tell myself. And I have people who say, Flip, why, why don't you do that? Why don't you think that way? Why don't you try that? I think we could do that. I think we have the ability. Our team says that all the time. What would happen if, and we, and we really, and this is something I say a lot, Julie, I don't want to live within my talents. I want to live beyond my dreams. But you can't do that if you don't go there. Uh, well, let's, let's go there. So uh, let's completely go there. Uh, before we get to writing the story, let's, let's go to the first story, which is I'm assuming what you mean by you have to go there. Yeah. How do we identify that first story? Well, the, the first place it starts is in your second story and finding some of the things that you've done in your life. And I don't care how small the example is. But just look at your second story, the life you're living right now, and just stop and find some things that you're flat lying to yourself about. You know, and I'll give you some corporate examples, too, because companies do it. Companies do it. Couples do it. Parents do it. People do it. We all do it. There are no exceptions to this. We all lie to ourselves to make ourselves okay where we are like we are. And in a great example of that, I was with a, a friend of mine, a couple recently, and they were just sharing about uh, their marriage. And they said, you know, we just we just really wish that, uh, you know, we were able to communicate better. And I'm like, well, you know, why aren't you doing something with that? And they're like, well, you know, we've been doing it this way forever. And you listen to their story and it's like, you guys could have an amazing marriage. Why would you not try that? Why would you not go there? I mean, it's as simple as that. I listened to the people with Toys R Us. And I mean, that was a massive collapse of a great company that could have been amazing. But the story they told themselves was Amazon's putting them out of business. And I'm like, is Amazon putting you out of business, really? Why is it that Barnes & Nobles is selling toys? I mean, if, if Amazon's putting anybody out of business, Barnes & Nobles ought to be out of business, but they're not. And so you follow what I'm saying? Hmm. It's where are you lying to yourself? Start there. Find the things you're telling yourself right now that are just flat, not true. And when you find some of those, then it's like, okay, now what, what do I want? What do I really want my life to look like? And get a picture of that 
So first thing is identify some of the stories you're telling yourself. Second thing is, what do you want? What do you really want? Now, let me, let me tell you another part of this third story. People don't change without an emotionally compelling reason. And I've had that discussion with uh, hundreds and hundreds of people, and a lot of people say, well, you know, I, I like to think through things, and I'm very rational and that sort of thing. The, the research does not bear that out. We're not terribly rational people. We like to think we are, but we're not. And so when you start looking at why would I change my story, you want an emotionally compelling reason to change your story. And I'll tell you a fun example. A close friend of mine, uh, uh, her daughter was getting married. And uh, the <laughs> next thing I know is that uh, she comes in and she's just looking pretty as all get out. And I made a comment about her. What, are you working out or what are you doing? You're doing something different. And she kind of laughed and said, well, you know, I'm, I'm working out a lot and, you know, et cetera. And I said, well, what's driving this? And she just smiled and she said, my daughter's getting married and I know what I want to look like at that wedding. It's an emotionally compelling reason. Yeah. Now, is it good to get in shape, you know, whether your daughter's getting married or not? Yeah, for sure it is. But that's not sufficient. We know we ought to eat right and exercise, et cetera. But we have an emotionally compelling reason that drives change to what we want to see happen. I want to stick with the, the first story for a second for possibly selfish reasons. I, I want to just tie it to parenting. We're going to come back to business. And, but I just want to tie it to parenting for a second. You know, we, we, we all grow up with stories. We grow up with stories that we inherit culturally, stories that we inherit demographically, from a family perspective, genders. But from parenting, how can you be very conscious and mindful of the stories you program in to your children? Well, that's um, obviously one of my favorite subjects. And Julie, I don't think you know this, but Susan and I have raised 20 children do you know what? I did read that, and it's one of the things I wanted to ask you about because I, as someone who's trying to raise two, I cannot <laughs> even, I can't conceive of that. Well, they're easier by the dozen, so. <laughs> <laughs> so tell but, me uh, about that. I mean, I know yeah. you, you, do, you do a lot of work in education systems nationwide, which I've, I've looked into and is incredible, and you have the Capturing Kids Hearts program and We'll talk about what's in your backpack, but just let's stay here. How do you, how have you learned to become mindful of the stories you program? Well, let's, let's think about that because the, you know, what we like to talk about are behaviors that you can execute with fidelity over time. So it, just by way of a little background, um, I'm, I'm actually, I grew, I'm fourth generation Texan. Uh, my father was a dentist. I grew up from a long line of ranchers. And, uh, but I'm the product of an affair. And so the first time, um, you know, I was physically abused to a great degree. I was eight and the last time I was 21. And so my home life had a lot of secrets in it and you would have never known it. Very well-respected family in a small town. And, but we lived with a lot of secrets. And so when I had children, the well, the first time my mother hugged me, I was 42, and I think it was the same time frame with my dad. So it was not the kind of family I wanted to replicate. So uh, from when our 
first child was born, the very first thing that I did is I committed myself to hug and kiss him every morning and every night of his entire lifetime. And, and I've done that. And, and of course now he's grown and every time I see him, I hug him and I see him a lot. He lives here in town now. And, and so I've done that with all of our children every night, every night of their life that they were home. I went upstairs and laid in bed with each one of them, talked to them, laid on the floor with them, told stories to them every night, Julie, without fail. We always had dinner together at least three nights a week. Those dinners would always last more than an hour, and there were no electronics at the table. We would always sit and talk. And so there were very intentional things that we did. Another thing that we did that's foundational is that early on, I learned the power of asking forgiveness. If, if I would find myself getting frustrated or whatever, I would stop and say, you know, it's wrong for me to act that way, guys. Would y'all forgive me for that? Instead of saying, I'm sorry, I was very intentional about the words. I wanted their forgiveness. The only way to get that was to ask for it. So by modeling those things, I got those things in return every time they came in. It's easy to start when they're very small, yeah, but I would encourage every parent right now to just say, you know what, guys, there are things in our relationship that may be broken or not what I want them to be, but I want to own some things, and I really do want to ask forgiveness for that. But I'm going to do better in XYZ area. You know, you just reminded one of the most beautiful pieces of advice I was given when I first had my daughter, and I was... It was a busy period of time. There was a lot going on, and I'd, I'd found that I was being less patient than I had hoped that I would be. And another mother said to me, she said, you know, every time that happens, don't give yourself a hard time. Use it as an opportunity to mm. model apologies, to That's model right. asking for forgiveness, to model owning something that didn't go very well and stating that you will do better next time because that skill will stand her in better stead than, a, than perfect parenting. Yep. watching that yep. play day after day. And so, yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's, it's very powerful, Julie. I mean, none of us are, are perfect. I mean, I certainly have had my times, and, and I think most people do. But but how do you, the, the question is, how do you reconcile a relationship? And then the, the question after that is, you know, if you had a conflict and you reconciled it and asked forgiveness— was the conflict, did it weaken the relationship or it strengthened it? Well, obviously it strengthens it as you reconcile that because it, it really establishes the fact that there's not anything we can't work through in a healthy relationship. And and so now, you know, the kids that, that we've helped raise and that have been in our home and, I mean, 20 children's a lot of kids and we've adopted some and had papers on others and et cetera. But you know, our family is very close. Our children, some of our children have adopted children, and it continues on now. And so building building healthy families is a behavioral thing that you do with great intentionality. And, and you can't focus on the rules. You have to make it about the relationship. And then it's easier, you know, for the parameters to be established because the relationship is intact. I want to hone in on a word that you said a little while ago, which was the word forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, that has the, the potential of being taken as a, as a little bit trite and a little bit woo-woo. Or... But the truth is that 
in a business context, in a home context, in a family context, in the context of, of just working with ourselves, if we don't figure out how to forgive, then we're always stuck in a story of some description, an old story of some description. Have you, have you learned anything about the process of forgiveness or the importance of forgiveness? Or is it even possible when it comes to certain stories? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think about some of the great authors of the past and some of the work that's been written about that. And, uh, you know, you right now I'm actually doing some studies on the Nazi concentration camps and how people recovered from that. And, um, yeah, when I see people forgive things that you think are almost unpardonable. And, and I understand the tragedy of that. But, you know, to not forgive it and to hold on to it means that you'll continue to be victimized by whatever that event was. You know, I mean, people do wrong things to people, and in many cases, they do terrible things to people. But I've, I've watched people in Rwanda who, in the midst of the genocide, have forgiven other people. We've watched reconciliation take place in events that, to me, are absolutely indescribable. And I compare that then to my ability to forgive and and thankfully, I've been able to start with small things. And then when larger things take place, it's become a process of letting go of things. I, I don't want to live with, a, uh, if you will, a backpack full of trash. I just don't want to carry that around with me. Which speaks to the, the probably the most understated thing about forgiveness is that you don't do it for somebody else. You do it for yourself. You do it to lighten your own load. You do it to yep. deepen your own ability to build strong and healthy relationships. Yep, that's very, that's very, very true, Julie. It's very true. And, and candidly, I mean, I need forgiveness. It's not. This is not a topic that very many people talk openly about. But, but you know, I I do things. I I you know I ask things of our team at times. It stretches the resources and. Uh, sometimes I'll be impatient about things. And when I see that, I have no problem saying, guys, I was out of line on that, or I pushed too hard on that, or I uh, expressed too much frustration about something. And, you know, I, I, I really want you to forgive me for that and hope you can. And, of course, when they hear that, especially from senior leaders, Julie, that is the rarest commodity in the corporate world there is today. But the greatest need, I think, in leadership is humility and authenticity. And I want to bring that to my team. I, I want them to be able to do that. You know, one of the, the other day, one of our office buildings, uh, part of it flooded because one of the staff turned a valve the wrong way and then left for the weekend. And I saw her Sunday evening when I was coming in from Atlanta from some meetings. And, oh, my gosh, she was just so contrite about it and upset. And, and I told her, I said, good gracious, things happen. And she said, oh my gosh, Flip, how could you ever forgive me for that? And I said, it's easy. Watch, you know, I forgive you for turning the valve the wrong way. Good Lord. Nobody died. We're okay. We'll recover from this, but it's a process and it brings, it brings deeper connectivity in your team. And when you've got that, then you guys are, you can weather anything that's coming towards you business-wise. 
let's let's move into the next bit. You know, let's uh, let's move into the bit where we rewrite, where we rewrite a third story. What's the what's the process? I know you have a plan for rewriting your third story, the story that you actually consciously write to get you from A to beyond Z. Yeah, yeah. So, so to me, the you know, obviously, the first thing is find some things you're telling yourself that aren't true. And you know, like like for example, uh, um, many years ago, many many years ago, especially in the education division of our company, because we're the largest educator training company in North America, and. You know, how did that happen? Well, I I was telling myself a story that, you know, if we could only expand, if we could expand into three cities, that would be amazing. And I remember somebody sitting there saying, well, don't the other cities need it? And I was like, well, yeah, they do. But, you know, this is a, this this would really stretch our resources. And then one of the teams said, Flip, why are we not the best in America? And I was like, well, that's true. And, you know, and I could even hear myself inside thinking. And then one of the teams said, you know, don't you really think that every teacher in America would benefit from this? For that matter, every teacher in the world. Don't you think that it would benefit every kid? And then you start thinking about what's the emotionally compelling reason for doing that. It's, be, it's because in, in this country, we've got 60 million kids in public school, and we've got a dropout issue, we've got a suicide issue, we've got a mental health issue, we've got kids that are not doing well, we've got a high divorce rate, etc. And I found some emotionally compelling reasons pretty quick. Why, why did we want to grow? And it wasn't to make a bucket load of money, Julie. I think for some people that reason may be sufficient. For me, it's not. I wanted to build a great company that did amazing things. And so we had a great purpose, and then what we needed was a plan. We certainly had an emotionally compelling reason. So if you break it down, you know, what what do you want to do? What What do you really want to do? What's the biggest dream you could have? What's the emotionally compelling reason for doing it? And then the third thing, okay, what's your plan? What is your plan and who are you going to tell that plan to and be accountable for? And do you, is it useful to split that story up? Because just while you were talking there, there's, there's two stories, right? There's the, the story of what you want to build. There's a story of the house that you want to build as a, as a metaphor. Then there's also the story about who you are to do this. Like, who am I to do this? You know, yeah. if you've still got old stories about who you are, then that beautiful architecture and that beautiful why just will sit there un, untapped. Yeah. So the question is, as you would say within yourself, who are you to do this and how, how in the world could it possibly be me that does this? And my question to you would be, why not you? Why not you do it? And, and even if you don't accomplish everything that you've written out in this beautiful architect plan, I can assure you, you'll do more than you ever dreamed of. That's one thing, Julie, that I think most people don't realize is that they have more in them than they have ever comprehended. I mean, we work with we work with many of the elite corporate leaders of the world and certainly many of the elite athletes of the world. I just gave the keynote at the International Olympic Congress in Fiji, and then I gave one in Miami. And we I mean, we work with many of the top athletes in the world and to sit with them and say, you know what, there's more. There's still more. And, and inevitably, they find it. 
And it may not mean that their time on the track is that much faster, but it means that their life is that much bigger. It means their family is that much larger. It means their ability to give, to do, to serve is so much more increased than what they ever dreamed was possible. I mean, we really should be thinking about how do I live that way and what would keep me from doing that? Whatever that obstacle is, take it out. Go to work on it. Find a way around it or over it or under it or through it. I don't care how you do it. But if what you want is that emotionally compelling to you, I promise you, you're going to make amazing progress towards that goal. Now, you've said in, in the work that you've done that there will be, there will be story dragons. And I just love that imagery. <laughs> there will be dragons that will come for your story. My daughter would love that. Talk to me about these dragons. What do they look oh, like? Oh, you know, the, I think our lives, I think we have all kinds of dragons that fight us. I mean, apathy and uh, listening to other people, uh, the different things that rear their heads to get in the way. And, you know, we wrote about many of those, but the, but the reality is, is that there are hundreds of dragons that will attack you. I mean, and I'll never forget when, <clears throat> and of course now you know a little bit about my family background, but I'll never forget when I was building one of my office buildings here, I'd brought in the Amish barn from Ohio. We'd loaded it up and brought it to Texas and CNN was filming a show on it. And it was just a, it's a beautiful building. And I, I just love it. And it was about halfway through the construction and my, my mother came up and I took her to see it. And when she, when she walked up to it, she turned to me and literally Julie, she said, you know, why, why can't you just be like other people? Why do you have to do these crazy things? This isn't going to work and nobody's going to come out here to this office I just don't understand this. And and I remember standing there and she said, what happens if this fails? And I said, well, I'll turn it into the most amazing hay barn the world has ever seen. And, you know, she kind of shrugged her shoulders and walked away. And I remember standing there thinking, you know, it's so sad that she is not able, you know, just because of things in her own life. My mom certainly was not a bad person by any stretch. I mean, she had her own struggles. But but she just could not see beyond this negative side. And, of course, now people come from all over the world and they sit in that office and, and they love it. And, but I could have easily listened to the people who've said things like that to me. You just have to be able to say, you know what, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing that with me. But inside, you have to have a, a louder yes than the no's that you hear. The yes inside you should be screaming at you that, yes, I can do this, and yes, I'll build this, and yes, I'll try this. And if it doesn't work, what you've learned from that is going to make you better prepared for the very next thing that you step up to. Something I wrote down when I was, when I was doing my research, which is not everyone will like your new story. Not everyone will oh, yeah. like your third story. Your partner might not like your third story. Your team might not like your third story. The board might not like your third story. And because it's not right or wrong, we just we make implicit agreements with people when we go into any kind of relationship with them. And writing a third story sometimes breaks those agreements. How do you handle that? How do you handle the pushback? Yeah. Well, 
Uh, thanks for bringing it up, Julie, because that's a very powerful point. You know, many years ago when I was seeing patients, um, I'll never forget, I had a gentleman that was a, a really a nice guy, but he was a chronic alcoholic. And uh, through what we were doing, you know, he got sober, quit drinking, everything. And I saw he and his wife together one time, and and she said, you know, honestly, I wish he was still drinking. And I, I was really taken back by what she said. And I was like, okay, help me understand that. Uh, tell me why you wish he was drinking again. And she said, well, because now he's involved in parenting, and I was – I really, I really was doing it. The kids came to me all the time and she said, I don't, I don't like it this way, honestly. And, you know, I've got a good friend of mine that was in a terrible marriage and the husband looked at porn all the time and a bunch of other things. And, and, you know, she came in and just said, you know what, I'm going to get in shape and I'm just going to change a lot of things in my life. And as she did, you know, he began to just accuse her of having affairs and running around and all these other things, none of which she was doing at all. But, but you know, people uh, oftentimes, when you change, it causes people around you to have to make adjustments to that change. And they can either go with you on that journey and be successful with you on that journey, or in many cases, they will actually get left behind. You know, as people, as people grow, our groups change. You know, there are people that I spent time with in high school that I, I really probably would not spend as much time with now. Early in my career, there were people I was more connected to than I am now. And I think people outgrow situations if they continue on that journey. So, yeah, there, there are people around you at times that they will sabotage uh, your story that you're trying and in, in beginning to write. And they'll do that early on if they can. It's a tremendous threat to personal growth. And it's not, it's not personal. You know, everybody, <laughs> as much as it feels that way, and I think that that's just an important point to make, that it feels personal, but usually everybody's just doing the best they can with the information and the tools that they have. Yeah. So to that point, Julie, we want to bring people with us. You know, I think if you begin to change things in your life, you want to encourage, you know, like my friend who started exercising and all that and encouraging her spouse to do that with her. And, honey, let's get in shape and, you know, let's eat healthier. Let's go to bed earlier and let's have less wine on the weekend. And, you know, so that so that you can actually go with someone on that journey. I mean, it's all journeys are always best done when you can do it with a really close friend or spouse or mate. Yeah. I want to, um, you know, sometimes we sometimes we write a third story voluntarily, and sometimes we don't write it voluntarily. Sometimes something happens and it kicks us out into the wilderness, and we have to write our own third story, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. And you started the book with this beautiful story about saying how personal this concept of third story is to you. And it was a story about, about Christmas time. And I'd, I'd love you to tell it because I just think that, again, plenty of times we find ourselves in a situation where we may not want to write it, but we have to. 
Well, yeah. Julie, thanks for digging deep into my personal life here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to have some questions for you here in a minute. But uh, no, you know that what you're saying is so true. You know, literally, I had, you know, when I left graduate school, I built a nonprofit organization. I started working with gangs and throwaway kids and that sort of thing. It was a free outpatient clinic. And I grew the clinic up to being pretty large, about 35 clinical staff, about 500 patients a month, and serving a, a pretty large population. And and then uh, and it was free. You know, it was a very large and thriving clinic. And then I built a 500-acre residential treatment center, which is the highest license you can have just under an inpatient hospital. And of course, a 500-acre ranch facility and for boys and that sort of thing is a very, very large operation. And, and it was a thriving nonprofit organization. And uh, I had put together a board, and I had resigned and taken a position as an employee inside the organization because I didn't want any conflict of interest ever coming up at any time. And I'll never forget, obviously— but uh, on December the 24th, uh, one of my young sons and I swung by the office and uh, to touch base with uh, three of the board members. And 4.30 in the afternoon on Christmas Eve, I got fired. And and I, I remember my first thought, I mean, because literally they all signed NDAs that they wouldn't disclose reasons or discuss it with anyone. And, and I remember sitting there, I was, my first thought was like, can, is that even possible? Can they even do that? I mean, I built the whole company. And then the second thought was, is this really true? And I, and I actually asked them, I said, are you guys, are y'all kidding? Or what, what are you saying? And then when I asked why, it was like, you know, we can't talk about reasons or anything like that. And, but Flip, what we do want is we don't want you to share this. We want you to do it as a resignation. And and then we'd like to host, uh, you know, a uh, real celebration for you going on. We're going to announce that you're going to write a book and work on some other projects. And I was sitting there, Julie, literally in shock, thinking, uh, you you want me to be duplicitous about what's happening? And I just can't I can't do that. I don't live that way. I don't understand this. And I, I walked out of there really kind of in shock. And I mean, it's Christmas Eve. Good gracious. And, you know, that night, I, I'll tell you some of the personal part, but I uh, got home and put on my rain gear. It was sleeting that night. And I walked down the road uh, way out into the country, a pretty long walk. And I'd sit down, I crawled under somebody's fence and sat in the woods and I just wept. I just couldn't understand what was happening. And, you know, I'd given my whole life to building this organization. And after probably about an hour and a half, I, you know, I got up and crawled out of the woods and walked back home. And, you know, a few weeks later, started my own practice. And, you know, within 90 days was making three times as much money as I'd ever dreamed of making. And I look back on that event. That's not an event that I ever would have designed. And, and then, you know, like six months later, uh, the board uh, realizes that some of the things that they were thinking were 
not the facts at all. And, you know, the newspaper ran a full page, front page deals about my amazing life and how cool I was and the contributions I'd made and all that kind of as a going away thing. And, and I remember just thinking, golly, this is crazy. You know, it's just crazy. And, but, you know, today I'm, sitting here on my ranch doing this podcast and actually the ranch I sit on is the land through whose fence I crawled many, many, many years ago and sat and wept. I now own all that ranch and, you know, you never would have dreamed that. And, and so sometimes things happen in people's lives. I mean, they get divorced and they think it's the absolute end of their life, but it need not be. There's life beyond divorce. They, I see people go bankrupt, and there's life beyond bankruptcy. There's life beyond being terminated. There is life beyond. And that's really kind of the theme for my life is that there is more. It doesn't matter what's happened to you, whether you chose it or didn't choose it. It doesn't matter if you were abused, if you were raped, if you were broken, if you've been bankrupt, if you've been fired. It doesn't matter. There's still more, and with whatever pieces there are, it's really in your hands to do something with that. And to me, that's the joy of finding hope where you are right now. You have to let go of a lot of that, but there's the ability to rebuild that, and and that's what my life has been about, and that's what I want people's lives to be about. So, yeah, sometimes things happen to you. And it's what you do with those things that really makes the difference. And you had said um, that the, as, a, as an end to that story, you had said that there was no here without there. Yeah. And I just, that point, <clears throat> just kind of underlying bold, that point, because I think that it's so easy to forget that when you're designing a big life or you're designing a big business or a movement that's going to change an issue or the world, it's a pendulum, right? And yes. if you want it to go up really far on one side, you have to embrace the moments where it comes back on the other because you can't design a big life that only goes one way. Yeah, that's fair. Julia, that's so true. It, you know, it's, it, it's a little embarrassing to say this, but, you know, after I got out of graduate school, the next 16 years, they were certainly hard. I mean, building a company is, but... But, you know, I'd in, in pretty much every respect been really successful at that. And that moment of brokenness brought me so much insight and, and candidly a lot of depth, too. I think people that really have deep character have been broken. And I, it's not a pleasant process, but it's a powerful process. And I and truly, as I said in the book, that... You you will not be here if you had not been there. And so I, I cherish being there. I cherish the abuse in my childhood. I don't wish it on anybody, but I cherish what it did to me. I mean, because of that, we have 20 kids. Because of those events, we've built what we've built. Because of those things, I'm able to embrace my children and love them, kiss them, hold them, be close to them. You know, you would not be where you are right now, Julie. You would not personally be you were where you are right now if you had not been where you were 
and had some of the sad and heartbreaks that you've had in your own life. And you know that's true. It's very, very true. And ironically, those moments that you that are the hardest, or at least in my experience, the moments that are the hardest and the worst and the ones where you think, you know, things will never go back to the way that they were for the worse, are the moments that you later look back on and realise that the space that that created invited something else in. But sitting in the discomfort, sitting in the moment in between, sitting in the space between two chapters where what you've written is over and you don't know how to start writing something else, that is incredibly uncomfortable. And one of the best pieces of advice I ever got about that was from a mentor of mine. And I was in one of those moments. You know, I'd, I'd finished one chapter. I was trying to figure out how on earth I would write another And whether the next chapter I was going to write would ever be as good as the last one or whether that was as good as I was ever going to be. And he said to me, you know, these moments in between are the most precious moments in your life. Don't rush them. Because if you rush them, all you will ever do is rewrite the same chapter over and over and over again. Yeah. And Exactly. That piece of advice, I think if I'd not heard that, I would have just started writing again out of panic that there was nothing to define me. I need to write because that's what defines me. And that permission enabled me to write something, write something different. Yeah. Yeah. That, Julie, that's a great point. You know, people, people tend to say, you know, experience is a great teacher. But here's, here's the truth of that. Experience is not a teacher. It's reflection on the experience. You know, being to your point, it's you have an an event take place. If you don't pause and stop and reflect on that and say, what are the lessons in that experience? How could I handle that? How could I have done that differently? What could I do with that? It's not the experience that teaches you. It's that pause afterwards. It's the reflection. It's the insight that you get by sitting and thinking about what are the lessons and what can I do with those? You're you're exactly right with what you're saying. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna close on on this note. The if I if I could put in front of you, you know, you've, you've raised twenty children, and I don't know how many grandchildren you have. I can only imagine twenty six. Twenty six and counting. I would have thought. <laughs> um, if I could put all your grandchildren and your great grandchildren in a room, in your, in your barn, and I give you five minutes in front of them to set them up for the best third story possible. What's the one thing that you would want them to know? I, w- I would look at them, Julie, with the sweetest smile I could muster, and I would say, sweetheart, I want you to know something. There is more. There is more than you ever dreamed of. You can give more. You can serve more. You can love more. You can do more. You can go more. You can serve and love and give your heart away to extents that you've never dreamed. And so let's go do that. I love that. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It's a joy. Thank you, Julie. It's been an absolute treat being with you.
Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.